Turn with me then, please, to the book of uh, Jonah. Jonah, a prophet on the run. Uh, God told him to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Uh, Nineveh was the really the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria were at the time the, the world power. Uh, they were gradually conquering nation after nation, taking over the then known world. Uh, Nineveh was its capital. And the Lord said to Jonah, go and preach against it. And uh, exactly what he was to preach, we see in chapter 3, because the uh, message came to him exactly the same as it was before. And in chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he, began, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now when you read that, it, it sounds inevitable, doesn't it? Nineveh's going to be overthrown. No question about it, no ifs, buts, maybes. Um, but the very fact that Jonah was sent gives a glimmer of hope, doesn't it? You think how the Lord dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah, no warning. Uh, the Lord just destroyed them uh, because of their uh, great wickedness. So the fact that Jonah was sent to preach that uh, just gave that suggestion maybe there was hope. Maybe if they repented, God would spare them. Uh, and what would happen if God spared them? Well, if they turned large scale to the Lord, the Lord would bless them. Uh, the Lord would be working amongst uh, the Assyrians. And when you think of the condition of Israel, and you can read in Kings and Chronicles this time, it was a pretty poor state. Uh, they themselves were involved in idolatry. They were disobedient to the Lord. Their rulers consistently were ungodly uh, people, especially in the northern uh, kingdom. Uh, supposing Nineveh, the Assyrians, turned to the Lord, and Israel continued away from the Lord, what would happen? pour out his blessing on Assyria rather than Israel and uh, that scared the life uh, out of him. He couldn't bear the thought. Uh, so what did he do? He took off in the opposite direction. Tarshish was as far from Nineveh uh, as he knew. To get to Nineveh you had to go northeast uh, but that would take you across the uh, Arabian desert so they went around what they call the Fertile Crescent there. They would go north and then east to reach uh, Nineveh. Uh, so Jonah just went the opposite direction as far uh, as he uh, could. And we might ask the question, how could Jonah run away from God? Uh, Jonah is a man of God. He's a prophet. The Lord has spoken through him. We saw that last time, looked at the example in uh, Jeroboam II's reign uh, when jo Jonah preached and proclaimed there, prophesied what would happen in Jeroboam's uh, time. So he was someone that was uh, used to bringing the word of the Lord there. Uh, how could he run away from God? Surely this man knew the character of God. 
We've been going through some of the uh, attributes of God in our prayer meetings on uh, Wednesday. Uh, Jonah must have known all those things. He knew that uh, God was, uh, uh, was consistent. Uh, God was everywhere. Uh, God knew everything. He was omnipotent uh, there. Uh, how could you run away uh, from God? Seems amazing, doesn't it? That such a man of God would imagine he could escape from the Lord and go away from God. Maybe someone here tonight was saying, well, I would never do a thing like that. Perhaps we would say that. We need to recognize the potential for sin in every believer. All of us have the potential for the worst of sins. We can say to we're blue in the face, a Christian shouldn't sin. That's true. But the fact is, he can and he does sin. Uh, we often uh, fail the Lord in that way. And to ignore that fact can lead really into perfectionism. Uh, and that takes various forms. Uh, it would uh, help us to, or cause us to, uh, to let down our guard. I mean, if we're holy, if the Lord is working in our lives and making us what we uh, should be, uh, then uh, we don't sin. We certainly don't fall into a major sin and there's a real danger of trying to interpret our lives wrongly uh, that we are fully obedient uh, to the Lord. The Apostle says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Also, people that move in that direction won't admit that sin is sin. If I believe I'm perfect, then that means everything I do is okay. So I justify everything that I do. Don't have to question it there. Uh, and there are various systems of uh, perfectionism and maybe uh, helpful just to touch on a couple for uh, a moment. Um, Charles Finney, of course, was uh, famous for his uh, perfectionism. He had a 10-year evangelistic ministry uh, seemed to have uh, thousands or tens of thousands of converts, but they nearly all fell away. And his conclusion was that he hadn't taught them properly about perfectionism. And so he began to teach the uh, truth of perfectionism. His final uh, teaching on perfectionism uh, was that every Christian is perfect. So if you sin, you don't merely cease to be perfect, you cease to be a Christian. And with that view, of course, of Finney, you can be in and out of grace a hundred times a day. So every time you sin, you cease to be a Christian. You repent of that, you become a Christian again until the next few minutes when you sin again and uh, back and forth uh, it goes, which really is uh, a crazy system. John Wesley's, perhaps more famous system of perfectionism, uh, spoke of loving God with all your heart and soul, and strength. Uh, but what did that mean? He said that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. That doesn't even exclude what he calls involuntary transgressions. He said, you may call those sins, I don't. So uh, Wesley's perfectionism was certainly less uh, than perfect. So those who feel that they're pleasing to the Lord, 
uh, everything is okay, they always have some means of justifying uh, their conduct and their, uh, their, their lifestyle. Another variation of that is the, uh, those that claim the baptism of the Spirit. We believe that every believer is baptized by the Spirit at conversion, but there are those that see it as a second experience. I remember talking to someone, basically he was an evangelist, uh, and he wasn't claiming it for himself, but he said his wife, some years ago, had experienced the baptism of the Spirit that had raised her to a, a level above uh, all other believers, put her in a different class uh, there. Again, what a, what a dangerous uh, position uh, to hold uh, to. Christians must indeed be marked by holiness. That's the main evidence of our faith. Uh, it should be our goal should be our longing to be holy. Uh, but falling away is always possible. Falling into sin is possible. Which of us hasn't run from God at times? Not maybe in the way that Jonah did, uh, but simply doing those things we know are wrong, displeasing to the Lord, doing the opposite of what we know is right. How many Christians have married unbelievers? And the word of God is clear. Christians shouldn't marry unbelievers. How many Christians have told lies? And we know that's wrong. How many have picked up pornographic material? And especially on the internet these days, how easy it is to have access to that kind of thing. But in whatever way we try to run from God, is foolish. It was foolish for Jonah. It will be foolish for us. Uh, I love Psalm 139, where the psalmist is speaking, I suppose, hypothetically here, but it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is, a light, is as light uh, to you. Thank God we can't run away from the Lord. Uh, I hope you haven't attempted to do that. You haven't imagined somehow you need to get away from the Lord, uh, away perhaps from God's people at times and uh, go a, a different path. Uh, one of the sad and subtle aspects of running away from God is that we uh, try to justify it. How many people marrying unbelievers been challenged over it and they say, well, the Lord's going to enable me to lead them to the Lord. Uh, they're going to be converted uh, there. Uh, again, trying to justify an unbiblical uh, course uh, of action. Now, there's no mention of anything Jonah said at this stage, but the record of events is suggestive. Uh, the details that are given. He uh, went down to Joppa, found the ship going to Tarshish. Joppa was about 50 miles from his home, which was Gath Hefer, which as you mentioned last time, is very close to Nazareth. 
uh, in Jesus' uh, time. So he went that 50-mile uh, journey to, uh, to Joppa. Now, Tarshish was literally the other end of the world, as the world was then known, certainly uh, westward. Uh, not many ships would sail from Joppa to Tarshish. And yet when Jonah gets there, what does he find? There's a ship sailing for Tarshish. How wonderful. Uh, providential leading of the Lord, uh, surely. And this leads us perhaps to some principles of guidance, positive uh, and negative. Uh, you can imagine Jonah. Uh, perhaps he thought at one time he was running away from the Lord. Maybe he was mistaken. Uh, perhaps he realizes he needed a vacation. He needed a Mediterranean cruise. And here's the boat the Lord has provided uh, for him at this time to take him on this uh, nice cruise uh, to Tarshish. What would the fare cost? Poor prophet here. Uh, how can a poor prophet afford uh, pay for a long voyage? Perhaps he waits breathlessly. He hears the price. He has enough. Uh, maybe I'm speculating a little bit, but again, these details are all given. He had enough to pay uh, the fare. Can anyone doubt that Jonah was doing the right thing? And all these things providentially came together uh, to enable him very easily to sail to Tarshish. Now we may smile, we know he was wrong, but it's amazing how many Christians walk in wrong paths, but because of the providential circumstances, they think it's okay. Here's a man that's out of work, desperately needs a job to provide for his family. He's a job advertised. He says, well, if I get this job, I'll know it's the will of God for me. And uh, he gets the job. And the problem is, it's a job that requires him to work every weekend. Uh, he can't get out to church, won't be able to serve the Lord uh, and his church. Uh, and yet he was convinced that's the will of the Lord. Circumstances must always be evaluated in the light of Scripture. Single Christians long to be married. Is a single woman. She longs to get a husband. She gives herself to a day of prayer and fasting. And the very next day, she meets a, a wonderful guy. He's just super. And they fall in love. They get married. But sadly, he's an unbeliever. How many times has that kind of thing uh, happened? Some rely on fleeces. Familiar with that term? Let me read a few verses from Judges 6. Uh, Israel has been invaded by the Midianites, and the Lord has called Gideon and told him to deliver the Israelites out of the hand of the Midianites. And has told him he'd be with him, he would do that. And so in 36 of Judges 6, Gideon says to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is on the fleece alone, and that is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And Gideon said to God, 
just one Please let me test and the police only, and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, when we speak about fleeces, and you may be familiar with this, uh, we refer to uh, testing the Lord and ask Him to direct us in circumstances that we have dictated. Uh, Gideon told God what to do. Right, I want a, a wet fleece on a dry floor, then I want a dry fleece on the wet floor. He spelled out the circumstances and uh, people use that to seek the direction of the Lord. Um, people looking for a house. They may say, well, we looked at one. If this is the one, then Lord, make the real estate man call before Friday. Spell out the conditions there. Or applying for a job, similar. The, uh, let the offer come within uh, two days. Uh, I'll know this is the job for me. Uh, what a dangerous approach. Now, of course, you'll say, well, what about Gideon? God gave him the signs he asked for. And that's true. Uh, God is often patient with us. But these signs were miraculous. Try that when you're spelling out your conditions for the Lord to uh, meet, to direct you. Uh, wet fleece on a dry uh, floor and a dry fleece on a wet floor. Uh, seek uh, miraculous signs uh, from God. Uh, people do that. I, I'm just reading the biography of John Bunyan uh, again, and there was a time when he was struggling to find the Lord, and he was looking for miraculous signs on the muddy day and a wet day and the muddy puddles around, and he was uh, asking the Lord to dry up the puddles and uh, to create puddles where it was dry. Uh, he realized that wasn't a, a good approach, but that was his uh, thinking. As far as Gideon was concerned, God had already promised what he asked. So asking for these fleeces was unbelief. God had already promised he would use him to deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. So say it was uh, uh, unbelief. And we're never so told to seek guidance that way. I know you may point out one or two other examples in Scripture, but we're never told to seek guidance in that way. Another thing people rely on is open doors. You know, an open door is a, a circumstance that enabled you to go forward in that uh, direction. And sometimes that's fine. Maybe there's a man burdened for a particular country. He wants to serve the Lord as a missionary, does his training uh, he applies for a visa to that country and he receives it. And he feels, well, that's an open door for him to, uh, to go. Well, that may uh, well be. Uh, he wasn't relying on one thing. He'd had the burden for that country. He'd done the training to go out in that direction. So there's nothing to criticize there. But imagine another case. A man retires from his job and he and his wife uh, are looking for a retirement home. 
They see an ad for uh, new condos. It's in a beautiful location. There's just one left. And so they pray, well, if this is the uh, way for us to go, Lord, if this is to be our open door, uh, provide for us. Let this sale go through. And it does. Wonderful situation. Uh, but there's no evangelical church within an hour's drive. Uh, so I say uh, open doors have to be evaluated uh, by Scripture, by biblical principles. That is so uh, important. We don't always have to go through open doors. Listen to these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. How do we explain that? Well, Paul was concerned about the church in Corinth. Uh, he'd sent Titus to Corinth. He wanted to get Titus' report. Uh, remember, no emails or internet in those days. Uh, so he had to meet up with, uh, with Titus. And he expected to find him at uh, Troas, but he wasn't there. And even though the door was open, the opportunity to preach the gospel, he was so concerned about the situation of the church in Corinth that he went on to, uh, to Macedonia uh, because he thought he would find uh, Titus there, which in fact uh, he did. So Paul didn't see that open door as an indication of what he should do at that time. There were other considerations there uh, for him to uh, think about. Open doors are not necessarily right doors. Closed doors are not necessarily wrong doors, maybe just temporary hindrances. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He writes the epistle to the Romans. Uh, he tells them there in one thirteen. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul had often attempted to go to Rome, but he'd been hindered. He'd been prevented from going. Now, some would say, well, the Lord's closing the door. The Lord doesn't want me to go to Rome. Uh, but Paul knew there was a need in Rome. He knew he could benefit the believers there uh, really felt a concern uh, for them. Uh, and so he kept trying. He kept on trying and, uh, until, well, he, only, he didn't actually go, did he, until he went uh, as a prisoner uh, to appeal uh, to Caesar. But that was his concern. It was a concern there, the direction he thought uh, was right for him uh, to go. <clears throat> Multiplied obstacles may not indicate the wrong course, uh, if something is biblically right. I always remember one of the professors at TBS many years ago now, Ray Reed, Welshman, I don't suppose anyone here would uh, know him, <coughs> Excuse me, but he was invited to preach the gospel out east. And as they drove off there, uh, they had not one but three flat tires. Uh, the rear window blew out, uh, but he felt this was an opportunity from the Lord and he, he kept going. As far as I know, the Lord blessed his ministry 
He didn't see these multiplied obstacles as a reason, as a closed door, a reason that he shouldn't go on. He, he judged things by other principles, uh, biblical uh, principles there, and uh, we need to do that. There's a lady in our church in England. <coughs> Her husband got sick, couldn't drive anymore. He had a car, so she needed to drive. So she took some lessons, she took a driving test. She failed. She took a driving test a second time. She failed. She took a driving test a third time. She failed. She took a test a fourth time. She failed. But she didn't say, well, the Lord's closing the door, doesn't want me to drive. There was a real need in the family. Do shopping and things like that, get out to church. So she took it a fifth time and she passed. Uh, so you see the principle there. Uh, if a thing seems to be right and needful, uh, the fact that there are hindrances, the fact that we might fail, it could be an exam, couldn't it? Uh, people with uh, taking a, a CA, are they different qualifications now, don't they? I don't know when my son took his CA. Uh, it was quite often for people to fail that two, three, four times. Uh, there Um, but you wouldn't say if you fail the thing well I guess the Lord doesn't want me to become a chartered accountant Uh, uh, you keep going Uh, so I say uh, a a closed door is not necessarily an indication that it's not God's will one more principle here about guidance when the storm came Jonah was able to sleep notice that in verse 5 This mighty tempest came, and the mariners were afraid, verse 5, and each cried to his God. They hurled the cargo into the sea. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lay down and was fast asleep. He had a real sense of peace even when the storm uh, started uh, there. His conscience wasn't bothering him enough to prevent sleep. Now, if you remember in Daniel 6, Uh, King Darius, who was the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, he was tricked into issuing a a decree that no one could ask any petition of man or God for 30 days. You remember that? And uh, Daniel, of course, took no notice. He knelt down, obviously, in a fairly public place. I guess his window was uh, visible to people, and he continued to pray to the Lord. And uh, they brought it to Darius, these uh, opponents of of Daniel and the uh, proverbial saying, the law of the Medes and Persians can't be uh, overruled, overturned. Uh, and so Daniel was more or less uh, compelled to throw Daniel to the, Darius compelled to throw Daniel uh, to the lions. Uh, but he didn't go to bed and sleep peacefully. He couldn't sleep all night. He was so concerned. He knew this was wrong. He'd been tricked. And uh, his conscience wouldn't allow him to sleep. Jonah uh, didn't bother him. (laughs) He went to sleep even after the storm uh, was quite wild uh, for a bit. It is nice if you have a sense of uh, peace. Uh, Perhaps Jonah at one time uh, uh, thought he'd had a dream or vision telling him to go to Nineveh. Uh, Perhaps it was indigestion. Now everything was going well. Providentially, Uh, able to go on this journey, had a real sense of peace, and uh, he falls asleep. 
Several times I've spoken to people who were following a course that was obviously wrong. And what have they said? I have peace about it. It seems to settle uh, everything. Uh, But what a dangerous approach uh, that is. Uh, It's nice to have a sense of peace. (laughs) Paul says in Philippians 4 there, uh, put away anxiety and pray and you'll know that peace of God that passes all understanding. But that doesn't always mean a quiet a serenity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear uh, within. So uh, having turmoil doesn't necessarily mean a path is uh, wrong. I know sometimes I've had to make in the past difficult pastoral visits. My stomach's been in knots, my mouth was dry, uh, but that was simply a physiological effect of a stressful uh, situation. Uh, I knew it was right to go. Uh, The fact I didn't have peace about it uh, didn't mean it was uh, wrong. So, uh, a state of turmoil and disquiet doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, it may, but let Scripture be the judge. On the other hand, a sense of peace doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the right thing. We must assess things from Scripture, not feeling. Well, poor Jonah, running away from the Lord, initially at peace, asleep, a dangerous condition, isn't it? Uh, bad enough to be in a rebellious, disobedient state, but even worse to be asleep in that condition. Conscience deadened, not bothered by the fact that we're walking in a path that is disobedient to the Lord. I wonder if any one of us here is in that condition. We know we're doing what is displeasing to the Lord. We know we're following a path which is obviously not right and yet perhaps we have a sense of peace. Perhaps our consciences have become hardened and deadened. Uh, I say that's a a dangerous uh, situation. God knows that. Uh, But thankfully, if we are true believers, the Lord doesn't let us stay in that condition. Jonah was due for a rude awakening Uh, from more than his state of uh, physical uh, stupor, but from his spiritual stupor uh, too. We'll look at that next time. But it's a good point to close on, isn't it? The health of our soul is not to be measured by harmonious circumstances. It's not by feelings of peace, but by our obedience to God and communion with him. So we have to ask ourselves, how healthy is our soul. How healthy is our spiritual state? Are we seeking to honour the Lord? Are we seeking to follow him, to be obedient to him and do those things we know are pleasing to him? Maybe the son that uh, haven't yet turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, never trusted Christ for salvation. Perhaps you're aware you're not really walking with the Lord as you ought to Well, may the Lord even use this uh, situation from Jonah to awaken you, to see that great need to be in a right 
an obedient relationship with the Lord. God grant it might be helpful to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we can see perhaps a very scary situation, a man that seemed to be running away from God, uh, seemed for a while that things were uh, working out for him in the right direction, but we thank you for your faithfulness eventually uh, to Jonah, turning him around. And Father, if any of us are walking in those paths, those ways that are not pleasing in your sight, not honoring to yourself.